Yeah. Hey, it's good to be back. Uh, Kellen preaching last week. Got to see that. Was glad to see that. He did a, an awesome job. Excited to, to see what God's going to continue to do there. We're launching the series on the parables. And you see the series is called The Moral of the Story. Okay? And as we get into that, we, we need to ask ourselves this question, what in the world is a parable? It's a, a funny word. It's something that we don't really use too often anymore uh, today, and we don't really talk in parables today, I wouldn't think, and yet maybe we do use them for kind of the same point, just with a, a little bit of a, a different spin on it. A parable, just basically put, simply put, is a story with a point, okay? Hence the moral of the story, the, the series title. It's a story with a point, and it's not an, an allegory. An, an allegory is something where you're looking for something that represents uh, a, a different thing in, in every little detail, okay? So this isn't uh, allegories we're, we're talking about here. You, you think of the parable of the prodigal son, okay? You, you're not going to look for an allegory in the pig trough and be like, well, the, the pig trough represents um, Sodom and Gomorrah, which represents sin, which represents Moses, which represents the burning bush, right? You're, you're not going to overanalyze a parable. A parable was something that Jesus was using, and he was telling it, and he was really looking to communicate one basic truth. Now, why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, that was part of the reason. He wanted people to wrap their minds around this simpler truth, and he wanted to, to do it in a way that they were going to understand, a way that was going to be a little bit easier for them to, to, to grasp, a way that was going to put uh, some flesh, so to speak, to this principle, this theological truth that he was trying to communicate. And so that's one of the reasons why he used parables. Another reason, though, why Jesus spoke in parables was actually to uh, to bring judgment on some people, people who had rejected Jesus. When the disciples asked Jesus, hey, why are you teaching in parables? One of the things that Jesus said is because it's, they're, they're given for you that you might understand. That's why a lot of the parables are interpreted by Jesus and ended by Jesus by them saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, there were those that didn't have ears to hear. There were those that couldn't understand. And so the parables were in some ways an extension of the judgment of God against the people that had rejected Jesus, that had spurned Jesus, that had said, hey, we're not going to follow after Jesus. And so that's why Jesus used parables. What are we talking about when we're t dealing with the, the parables? What kind of subjects are they covering? Well, there's a lot of different subjects that they're covering. One of the main subjects that they cover is the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, those are the the two parables we're looking at tonight are going to be covering the, the, the subject or talking about the subject of the kingdom of heaven. And we'll get into that in a, a minute here. But he also talks about evangelism. He talks about salvation. He talks about obedience in parables. So these are all different subjects, topics that we're going to hit on this semester. And I hope this is a practical series, as I do with all of them. But I really hope that, that this series is something that you can walk away and, and go home and say, okay, I've got some things about my life that I want to change, that I want to transform, that I want to see different. Because that was one of the main reasons that Jesus used parables, and that's one of the main reasons why we're going to be studying them together. But like I said, so many of Jesus' parables, starting in Matthew chapter 13, had to do with the subject of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven was a favorite subject, a favorite topic from Matthew's gospel just in general. He records more about the kingdom of heaven than any of the other gospel writers. And so as Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, uh, we need to, to do a little bit of legwork to figure out what he means by that. When the John the Baptist burst on the scene, he started telling people that they need to repent. Why? Yes, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kellen, what did you do to them? They're just not, there's no, I figured with you up here, they would just give more give and take with me, but nothing. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And then John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus, it says, starts preaching his preaching ministry on the same day that John the Baptist is arrested. And Jesus goes out with another message and he goes out with the message and he says, repent, why? Yes, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's close. It's nearby. And then when Jesus was crucified, died, and rose again, and then the disciples were commissioned to go out. They were commissioned to go out with a message as well. And do you know what that message was? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the subject, the kingdom of heaven, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, it refers to uh, the origin. It refers to the, the nature of this kingdom, to call it the kingdom of heaven. Number one, it refers to the origin, that this kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, is it? It's a heavenly kingdom. It's a kingdom that's from God, that's of God. And it also refers to the the king who's ruling over this kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom, so it's not an earthly king. And the king over this kingdom is who? Sunday school answer on the count of three. One, two, three. There you go. Jesus. Well, what was the kingdom of heaven supposed to be like? Had Jesus addressed anywhere that, that specifically in more of kind of a, a, a normal teaching side of things, what the kingdom of heaven was going to be like? Yeah, he did it in two ways. First, he did it in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. As Jesus is unpacking these ethical principles in the Sermon on the Mount, do you guys ever read the Sermon on the Mount and go, man, that sounds like it's impossible to live that out in full obedience. Anybody else there? Well, you know how Jesus leads into the Sermon on the Mount, to the meat of the Sermon on the Mount? He makes a a pretty astounding statement. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Unless my righteousness surpasses the, the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? They were experts in... The law, experts at being obedient, experts at being faithful to God, experts at being righteous. There were people who literally, as, as they walked down the streets, the Israelites, they looked at them and they said, wow, those guys, those guys are righteous. They are faithful. They are obedient. And Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus communicating at that point? Is he communicating a legalistic gospel? Hey, you've got to do all of these things. What's he trying to get us to the conclusion? He's trying to get us to the conclusion that we can't do that. We can't have our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. We can't live out the, the, the kingdom ethics that are given to us in the, the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. We can't do that. But who did? Jesus, right? So as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, and you think about what it has to say about lust, and you think about what it has to say about, uh, what, uh, has to say about anger, you say, think about what it has to say about marriage and divorce, about fasting, about pride, about humility, and all of these things. And, and we step back and we look at that and we say, wow, that would be a pretty great world to live in if everybody lived that way. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's framing out what the kingdom of heaven is actually like for us. It's a place in which all those, those kingdom ethics are lived out perfectly. Sounds like a pretty great place. But then, beyond just the ethics of the kingdom of heaven, we see the demonstration of the kingdom of heaven. Because after that, in Matthew chapter 8 and following, all the way up until the point, basically, when we get into the parables in chapter 13, Jesus is working miracles. In chapter 8, 1 through 4, he heals a leper. In chapter 8, 5 through 13, he heals, heals a, a paralyzed man. 
In chapter 8, 14 through 17, he heals Peter's mother-in-law who was sick and unable to get out of bed at that moment. In Matthew 8, 23 through 27, he calms the storm. In Matthew 8, 28 through 34, he heals two demon-possessed men. In Matthew 9, 18 through 25, he raises a girl from the dead. In Matthew 9, 27 through 31, he restores sight to blind men. In Matthew 9, 32 through 34, he gives speech to a mute man. In Matthew 12, 9 through 14, he heals a man with a deformed hand. In Matthew 12, verse 22, he casts out a demon out of a blind and mute man. And so you see Jesus doing these, these miracles and, and doing these things where it's not just a, 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 a just happenstance, a coincidence. This is God intervening and, and suspending natural law, a God thing one, so to speak, to heal people, to do miracles, to work miracles. And what Jesus is doing is he's peeling back the curtain on the fallen world and showing us what this world could be like if it wasn't under the weight and the curse of sin, under the weight and the curse of the fall. So we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and God says in Genesis chapter 3, hey, you know what, there's this tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. All the rest of the trees, except for the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can eat from any of them, just don't eat from this tree. And Satan comes in, tempts Eve, Eve reaches out, takes from the fruit, eats, Adam eats with her, and then... There's the curse that comes after that is the, the consequence for the fall, that creation is cursed, that mankind is cursed, that, that sin has entered the world. And as Jesus is living and breathing and walking on the earth, doing these miracles, he's pulling back the curtain, so to speak, on what's to come in the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be a place where there is no more leprosy, where there's no more disease, where there's no more physical affliction, where there's no more death, where there's no more, uh, there's no more demons. There's no more natural disasters. And so Jesus is demonstrating, yes, his authority over all those things, but he's also showing us what is coming in the kingdom of heaven. It's described for us more specifically in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 22 through, or verse 22 through 22, 5. And, and I'm not going to go there and, and read that whole thing right now, but you guys are familiar with that passage. Hopefully, if not, turn there, read it at some point tonight. It's, it's that text that talks about God wiping away every tear from our eyes. It talks about the, the tree of life being there. It talks about the, the river of life flowing from the throne of God. It talks about the fact that there's not going to be anything unclean that exists inside the kingdom of God, that the gates are going to be open all the time because the, the lamb is going to be the light. The lamb is going to be the sun. And it gives this depiction in this picture of the kingdom of heaven, the new heavens, new earth that are coming that should cause us all to say, hey, you know what? I want that. Because think for a moment about the world in which you live right now. Death, disease, depression, anxiety, suicide, hatred. All these things that, that characterize this world. And now think about the fact that there is a place that is coming where none of those things will ever exist again. And ask yourself, do you want to be in that place? Do you want to be there? Do you want what's coming with the kingdom of heaven? And why is it going to be like that? Because we're going to be in the presence of God and God is going to have for once and for all dealt with all sin and its consequences. And that's why so many of Jesus' parables deal with the subject of the kingdom of heaven, including the two that we're going to look at tonight. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. 
In Matthew 13, Jesus has again been dealing with the subject of the kingdom of heaven with these parables that he's been telling, the parable of the sower. Then he tells the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. And we're going to go over some of those parables in this series later. But he's been telling all of these parables. And again, a parable is a story with a point. He's communicating a a point. He's driving home. He's illustrating something of what the kingdom of heaven heaven is going to be like. And then we come to verses 44 through 46. And we read this. The kingdom of heaven is like. It's like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like. In these two parables, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to something. He's saying it's like what? It's like a treasure. It's like a fine pearl, a pearl of great value. Let's talk about the treasure in the field. You guys, how many of you guys have a bank account? Hopefully all of you. Some of you are out there going, no man, the government runs the banks. They're going to steal our money. Donald Trump is whatever. And so you, you bury your, matri- your money in your mattress, whatever. You, you've got a place that you keep your money. Well, there were no Chase Banks of, of Jerusalem in the first century. And so people had their, their money and a lot of them, the, the banking actually went through the temple. But if there was pos- <coughs> specific valuables, if there were things that, that people had that were prized possessions, that they didn't want to get lost or stolen or damaged or anything else, what they would do is they would take their valuables and they would, they would stash them somewhere. They would hide them somewhere. And so a lot of times they would go out into their field, into their land, and they would go to a place where they would remember and they would bury their treasure in that place. It wasn't uncommon. In fact, we have uh, written down in some histories for us when raiding armies would come into villages and towns, one of the things that they would do is they would go up and they would dig up the, the land all around people's homes. Why? Because that's where they would oftentimes find valuables, find treasure that had been left there. When the parable, this man comes into this field and he happens upon a treasure. And I know what you're thinking about, well, is this ethical? Should he have done this? Shouldn't he have disclosed the treasure's location? Well, by law, he didn't have a obligation, an obligation to disclose the treasure's location. Plus, it looks like since he's successful in buying this field later, that the man who owned the field had no clue that the treasure was there. But that's what we, an example of how we can get into trouble if we're overanalyzing all the details of the parable, okay? There's, there's one point that Jesus is making, and we're not supposed to be like CSI going after whether or not this guy was ethical and what he was doing here. The story is, he finds a treasure, this treasure is valuable. So he covers it up, and he goes and he sells all his hats. But then he, he also compares it, he says, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great value. Ladies, any of you have pearls? Maybe your grandmothers or your, your, your moms have pearls, and, and they're like, someday I'm going to give you this necklace, or something like that, right? Pearls today aren't as... as significant and in vogue as, as they once were, but in Jesus' day, the, the pearl was the diamond of Jesus' day. It was a status symbol. It was a a symbol of great wealth and of great value. And so if you had pearls, you were doing well for yourself. They were compact. They were small. They could be carried around. And they had a great representation that you were somebody who was doing doing good. You could could hang with with people. And and why was that? Because to to get pearls was not an easy uh, task. And from what I understand, it's still not an easy task today. It involved diving, and it involved diving to, to depths with weights tied, to, tied around their waist, and it involved going down to, to find the oysters and, and to shuck the oysters to try to find the pearls in them, and it was hit and miss, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an easy job. There were a lot of people who would die because this was obviously before air tanks and everything else, and so this was just totally free diving. 
And so pearls were, were costly to obtain, and, and so therefore their, their value to people went up. And here you have this merchant, and he's a merchant who sells pearls, and he's in search of like the, the best pearl that he can find, and finally he comes across it. And it's this pearl that he describes as having great value. Jesus was making a, a clear statement to those with ears to hear about the value of the kingdom of heaven. If you have a treasure, you know something of great value. Some of you guys feel that way about your car. Some of you don't, and I get that. My first car, my bumper fell off as I was pulling out of my high school, and I, I picked it up and threw it in the trunk of my car and drove home. Um, I'm not a car guy, so at first I said, hey, do I need this thing to drive to somebody nearby? Because they're going to know, right? And they're like, no, I don't think so. So I just threw it in my car and drove home and then got duct tape out. Um, but some of you guys have a nice car, or you want a nice car, and you're saying, man, someday I'm going to drive this car. And that's, you, you understand the concept of a treasure. But all of you guys, I, I'm sure, have something that you value, that you take care of, that you make sure that, man, nobody else is going to get this thing because I'm going to make sure that this thing stays in, in pristine condition. Well, that's what the kingdom of, of heaven is like. And that's actually our, our first point tonight. It's this, we need to recognize that's the end. How in the world did that happen? Can you guys pull that back up for me? And let's go to slide number one and not slide number end. Recognize the, that Christ is priceless. That's the first point. Recognize, thanks guys, that Christ is priceless. Every once in a while, you, you'll see the story of some widow that sold a car that was in her barn for decades and she has no clue the value of the car. And it turns out to be like a, a super valuable Mustang or, or something else that has just sat untouched and is in just cherry condition except for it's covered in dust, which is dead skin cells. So that's kind of gross. But aside from that, it's, it's super valuable. And this woman has no idea what she has in, in the, the garage, but somebody who recognizes the value comes in and sees it and says, you don't realize th this thing is, is worth a lot of money. And somebody stumbles across it and, and ends up obtaining that. Or if you're like me and you've seen the Sandlot. Anybody seen the Sandlot in here? Right? You've got Smalls. And Smalls wants to fit in with people. And so Smalls goes out and he starts playing baseball with the neighborhood kids. Well, there was the, the, the wall and the beast right on the other side of the wall that nobody wanted to, to mess with, this massive mastiff. And, uh, and they're playing one day and they're having a good time. And, and Smalls, the ball goes over the wall. And at first, Smalls is like, don't worry, I'll get it. And everybody freaks out and yells at him and says, no, stop. And then they, they have the camp out and the s'mores and everything else. But before that, Smalls is like, don't worry about it. I've got another ball. And they're like, you've got a ball? He's like, yeah, my dad's got a ball. And so he runs home and he grabs this ball off the shelf and he runs back out there. And, and they're playing ball or whatever. And, and Smalls gets a hold of one and, and hits it and it goes over the fence. And everybody's so excited for him. And he's running around the bases and you see him just stop. And he's, his jaw drops and he's like, oh no, I just did something bad. And everybody's looking at him and they're going, dude, what's wrong? You just hit a home run. This is great. And he's like, yeah, but, but the ball it's, and they're like, it's all right. We'll get another ball. And it happens. Don't worry about it. And he goes, no, you don't understand. This is my dad's ball. I lost my dad's ball. And so he recognizes some value in it at that point. And they're like, yeah, but, but what's the problem? And he's like, I don't know. It was signed by somebody. And they're like, signed by who smalls? He's like, I, some girl, baby Ruth. And you guys know, Babe Ruth! And then everybody freaks out, right? And then there's the camp out, and then there's like the erector sets and trying to get the ball and the slobber and the... But he didn't realize what he had. If you guys haven't seen the Sandlot, I, I don't know if I can endorse it from the pulpit, but I just don't know if you're American. I just don't. It's baseball. It's anyways. He didn't know what he had, right? But then once he realizes, man, this ball's 
It was autographed by Babe Ruth, one of the greatest baseball players to ever play the game. All of a sudden, this ball was more valuable than just being his dad's ball. This ball was, was priceless. Guys, that's the kingdom of heaven for us. The kingdom of heaven is priceless. And so, some of us have grown up around it and become so familiar with it that we're like smalls with that ball. We just don't realize the value of what we have in the kingdom of heaven through a relationship with Jesus Christ. To us, it's just this, this ball that some girl signed. And we need to recognize that it's worth way more than a, a Babe Ruth autographed ball. It's worth way more than a cherry Mustang sitting in, a, in some old lady's garage somewhere. That the kingdom of heaven is priceless. So I ask you tonight, Christian, do you understand what your eternity is worth? Do you view your relationship with Christ as, as your greatest treasure? That priceless treasure in the field, that, that pearl of great and surpassing value, is that how you look at your relationship with Jesus? If I were to, to ask you before all this, hey, what are, what are some of the things that you value in your life? Would you have put Christ on that list? What are some things that you cherish? What are the, some things that you prize in your life? Your prized possessions. Would you put your relationship with Christ on that list? If you're here tonight and you're not a, a, a Christian, let me ask you, do you understand what's being offered here in the kingdom of heaven? With the gospel. Do you want that world that I was describing earlier with no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more hatred, no more anxiety? No more broken relationships, no more depression, no more prejudice, no more fear. Do you want that world? Because it's, it's there, it's, it's contained in the kingdom of heaven. And it's valuable to you. There are many reasons why the kingdom of heaven is valuable, but one of the main reasons why is because it's the answer to everything that's wrong in this present world. Should we go out and try to be good people? Yes. Should we try to be a good steward of the creation that we have? Yes. But the answer is not human effort. The answer is not to be less of a jerk. The, the only hope for this world that we see is Christ. And it's the eternity that's coming where he's going to recreate everything. The, the old is going to be gone. The new is going to be here. That's where our hope is. Ask the majority of people you come across if they would want an existence like that. And I would say that most of them, without a question, would say, yes, how do I get that? And this world's been answering that question of how do I get that? And they're answering it by saying drugs and alcohol. They're answering that by saying you need to, to go to a good shrink who's going to give you some, some good antidepressants and that'll make everything better for you. They're answering that by saying, you know what, throw yourself into work and become a workaholic so that you can have the retirement that you want. They're answering that by saying, you know what, it's, it's found in sex and physical relationships. They're answering that by saying, you know what, it's found in, in your identity. And so if you're not happy, change your identity. That's, that's the platform that the whole LGBTQ movement is built upon. I'm not happy with who I am, so I need to be something different. The problem is that's, that's not working. The reason the suicide rates are so high amongst people who have tried all these things and, and failed is because they've realized that these things don't work. The problem is, that, is not that society is not accepting. The problem is that these things that we substitute for the kingdom of heaven, they don't work. And so Jesus wants you to understand 
wanted his followers to understand that the answer to that search is found in what he was offering. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not so much of a threat as much as it is an offer. Repent, turn from your sin, because what I'm offering you is the kingdom of heaven. Recognize that that is priceless. Well, in these two parables, the main characters, upon finding the thing of such great value to them, whether the treasure or the pearl, they immediately decide that they have to have it. The one he... He covers it up in the field and goes and liquidates his possessions so that he can come back and buy the field, so that buying the field, he can get the treasure. And the other, the, the, the pearl merchant, had given his life to searching for pearls, and he goes and he takes all the pearls he had found before this, and he sells all of them in order to get this one great pearl. You know, there's something about a new Apple product that just sucks me in, right? It's like, I need that. A lot of times my wife confronts me on that. She's like, no, you don't. I'm like, no, but I do. Why? I just do. Because it comes in this box and it's clean and it's... Tim Cook told me I did. The other day I saw an ad uh, scrolling through Instagram. One of those promos popped up for a smart belt. No lie, a smart belt that, that plugs into like a lightning connector. I don't know what it does. It like counts your hip gyrations. I don't know what it does. A- anyways, I looked at that and I was like, that's stupid. And I kept scrolling by. But if Apple marketed a smart belt, you know what I'd be doing? Man, I need a smart belt. I need to have a smart belt. See, we, we desire so many things in life, whether it's Apple or something like that. And there's a difference between a low-key desire. Like, you know, I desire to be able to breathe. Okay. I, I, you're on pretty level ground right now that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking for now you're going to be able to breathe. I desire to eat. Okay. Well, most of us, uh, all right. There's, there's some tacos over there. So you can have those. I desire to go to sleep. Okay, you're going to be able to go to sleep. And, and that's just kind of a low-key desire. That doesn't consume me. But there are other desires that can consume you with a mindset that says, I have to have that. And it's a mindset that it, that it won't rest until you do have it. When you desire something on that level, it becomes what you think about, what you talk about, what you research, what you daydream about, what you spend your money on. And it can even impact the friends that you surround yourself with. That's the desire that we should have when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. It's point number two for us tonight, and it's this. Be consumed with a desire for Christ. Be consumed with a desire for Christ. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes the statement, he says, for where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. Your affections, your desires, your longings are going to be there. And so as that man left that field, that merchant walked away from that fine pearl, you believe that that's all they could think about. From that moment onward, their lives were radically different. It was all about how do I get that thing? Such that they were willing to take everything that they had and and just sell it in order to get it. It was consuming them. It was an obsession. It wasn't like, oh yeah, that's nice. Man, that, that person's lucky to have that. You know, it was like, how do I get that? I have to have it. That's the consumption that we should have when it comes to the concept of, of Christ. I want Jesus. I want um, a closer relationship with Christ. 
I want to know him more. I want more time in his word. I want to be around his people. I want to be changed by the word of God. I want to know where more of my sin is so I can get rid of it, so I can follow him better. I want to memorize scripture. That should be our consuming passion about Christ. Some diagnostic questions along that line. How often do you think about heaven? How often do you think about eternity? What is your concept right now of what heaven is going to be like? Do you want right now to be in heaven? No, I'm not asking if you're suicidal. I'm asking if you have a desire to be there, to, to say, you know what? This world's great and all. Like Paul said, for me to, to live is Christ, but what? To die is gain. I want to be there. In fact, he says that. He says, I would much rather be gone. My desire to depart and be with Christ is far greater. Do you want that? And then I would ask, why do you want that? And this is where I want to challenge us a bit tonight. Samuel Rutherford lived a a long time ago in our context. Once said this, he said, Oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. Put it in, in more of our current vernacular. Quote from John Piper. Do not tell Pastor Rod that I quoted John Piper. Okay, just don't, please. John Piper asked this, and this is a a convicting question. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and with all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? a convicting question to answer because it, it, it reveals what our affection really is. Do we love the idea of the brokenness of this world being undone? Do we love the idea of the benefits that we get from Christ or do we love Christ? It's an unfair question because none of those things are possible if Christ isn't there that realm in which all of those things are, are possible and there without Jesus, that, that existence, it doesn't, it's not there. It, it's impossible. But it is a convicting thought for us. Do we desire the benefits of the kingdom of heaven over and above the king of the kingdom of heaven? The treasure, guys, is the king. The pearl of great, great price, it, it's Jesus. He makes the difference between heaven and hell. That's why, listen to to John's description from Revelation 21 through 22 of the new heavens and the new earth, and listen to how he culminates. He says, then the angel, chapter 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from where? The throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light or lamp of sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus, guys, is the one that we need to desire above and beyond everything else. Are all those other things going to be there in heaven? I I don't know entirely, but a lot of them will be. All the good things, yes, they're going to be good things. Okay? It's not wrong to even desire those good things, but we also need to understand that our desire for Christ needs to transcend those things. Needs to go above and beyond those things. Because all of those good things that we have, that we enjoy in heaven, we're going to enjoy to the extent that we turn around and glorify God and exalt Christ as the giver of all of them, as the provider of all of them, as the one who gave us access into the kingdom of heaven through his work on the cross. Put it a different way to illustrate I can go to the beach. I can go to the beach and appreciate the beauty of the beach, right? And I, and I can look at that and I can say, wow, that's, that's amazing. And I can walk up and down the, the sand of the, the beach and go, yeah, this is awesome. And hear the waves and everything else. And I can appreciate that and enjoy that. But if I'm there with my wife, my enjoyment of that beach goes up an exponential amount. Because I'm there with somebody I love. And so that, that, that beach is better. That experience is better because I'm there with her than it would be if I was just there with, by myself or with Kellen. <laughs> right? You guys get that? That's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm driving at here with this idea of the difference between the, the benefits that we're going to experience in heaven and the presence of Christ. Any good thing in heaven is going to be ratcheted up to an nth degree because we're going to be there in the presence of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I ask, do you desire him? Do you know him well enough to desire him? If not, it's time to get to know him through spending time in the word. So you've got these two individuals, the man with the field and the pearl merchant, and they found this this thing that they desire more than everything else that they've ever wanted. And the desire has now consumed them to the point that it's all they can think about. So what do they do? Verse 44, then in his joy... The man with the field goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 46, the man with the pearl, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The desire of these men, that consuming desire that they had, drove them to action. They were willing to give up everything to gain the treasure that they had stumbled upon. Why? Because in the estimation of these two men, what they would gain in the treasure was worth more than what they would lose. In fact, it was worth everything that they would lose. This is the Apostle Paul's mindset as well in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, starting in verse 4, Philippians 3, 4 through 8, he says, Though I myself, Paul says, have reason for more confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul's saying, hey, you want to go toe-to-toe on resumes? Listen up. He says, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, he says, whatever gain I counted as loss, not less, loss, for the sake of knowing Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. 
And I count them as rubbish, as dung, as poop. That's what he's saying. In order that I may gain Christ. In order that I may gain Christ. These men were willing to consider everything they had lost in order to gain the treasure, in order to secure the pearl. And the point of the parable, lest you sit out there and go, so is the point of the parable that I need to work for or labor for or bring something to the table to get the kingdom of heaven? No, 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 no. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not what they had to offer. The point of the parable is this, that everything that they had, they recognized was worthless in, in comparison to what they had found in that treasure in the field or that pearl of great value. And so they were going to take everything else that they previously had thought, man, this is so awesome. This is so worthwhile. This is my whole life is wrapped up in my possessions. They're willing to take all of that and say, I'm going to count this as loss. I'm going to give it away. I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to let go of all of it in order that I may gain the treasure. It's point number three for us tonight as we're considering the worth of the kingdom of heaven. We need to rethink what really matters. Rethink what really matters. You know, before I met my wife, I had I dated other girls, other Christian girls that were nice and kind and everything else. And, you know, as, uh, before I met her, I, uh, there were thoughts in my mind of, well, what if that relationship had worked out or whatever? But then after I met my wife, everything changed for me. After I met Amanda and, and in a moment, momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes to going out with me. None of those old relationships mattered at all to me. In fact, not only did they not matter to me, I didn't want anything to do with them. I didn't even want to think about them anymore. It was pointless because I had something so much better than that. And so it totally transformed everything about me. It transformed how I interacted with every other person. The the person that mattered as far as an earthly relationship most to me and still matters most to me is sitting right there. It's my wife. It transforms everything. That's the way the kingdom of heaven works for us when we're followers of Jesus. It should change everything and cause us to rethink what really matters. Is Christ really that much better? Yes, listen to this. In Christ, there's forgiveness from sin. Let's start there. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That only comes in Christ. The world can't offer that. In Christ, there's freedom from shame and condemnation. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, in Christ, there is, that, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation. No shame. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world can't offer you that. In fact, it will offer you a lot of condemnation. In Christ, there's purpose in your life. There's significant purpose in your life. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In in Christ, we have a mission with eternal significance such that there is value to our interactions with other people. Every single day, we wake up with the opportunity to have an eternity, eternity changing conversation with someone. The world can't offer that to you. In Christ, there's worth. 
which I know is something that some of you struggle with. What is my worth in this world? Romans 8, 15 through 17, Paul talks about the fact that we have been given a spirit of adoption. A spirit of adoption by which we can call out Abba, Father, to the God of all creation. He has made us his. If you are in Christ, you are his son, adopted son, or adopted daughter. And he says, now that not, not only that, but you are an heir. You are a co-heir with Christ. That's a level of worth that transcends any other circumstance or relationship you have in this world. And this world can't offer you that level of worth. In Christ, there is hope beyond death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, we will raise from the dead because Christ himself also rose from the dead as the first fruits of those who would follow after him. This world has no answer for after death. In Christ, there's hope of an eternal inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. There's an unfading, undefiled, imperishable inheritance that is waiting for us who are being guarded through faith by God's power for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That eternal inheritance is something that this world cannot offer you. And so I ask again, is Christ really that valuable? Yes. Yes, he is. And a relationship with Christ should really, truly change everything about our perspective of what really matters. Because our hope is no longer here. Consider Moses' example. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You guys remember that? The whole story of the basket and the the baby basket floating out in the reeds and Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby and adopts Moses, right? Well, when Pharaoh's, when when Moses is grown up, he could have just laid low, played things low key and been like, yeah, the Israelites are being mistreated and everything else like that. I'm going to go ahead and stay here because I like Egyptian sushi or whatever they were eating in the, uh, the palace. But in verse 25, it says this. It says he was choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth and the treasures than the treasures of Egypt. Why? It says for he was looking to the reward. He was rethinking what really matters because he understood that there was something greater to be had in identifying with God than in identifying with this world and identifying with the kingdom of heaven than in identifying with the kingdom of this world. So rethink those things that really matter to you. Ask yourself that question, okay, what are the things in my life that I feel like I could not live without? And as you're running through that list, ask yourself this question, okay, what if you did lose that thing? What if you did lose that thing? What would happen? What would happen to your hope? What would happen to your worth? What would happen to... Uh, your significance, what would happen to your mission, what would happen to all those things that, that we just walked through earlier if you lost that thing that you think, man, I can't live without this. Well, if you have a relationship with Christ and, and the kingdom of heaven is yours, the answer to those things is nothing would happen to those other areas. Rethink what really matters. The kingdom of heaven, and more importantly, the king of heaven is immeasurably valuable. It truly is priceless. The moral of this story is that what Jesus offers is worth more than anything this world has to offer. Jesus is worth more than anything this world has to offer. 
the kingdom of heaven, it's priceless and should consume our thoughts and desires. And it should change the way that we look at everything else. And so again, I ask, what really is valuable to you? Before tonight, would Christ have fallen in that list as you're thinking through the things that you value, that you cherish, that you prize? I hope, if not, I hope that now moving forward, he will be on that list and that he will be at the the top of that list. Because if you are saved, there's no question that Christ is the most valuable thing that you have. Your relationship with Christ is the most valuable thing that you have in your life. It's the treasure in the field, it's the pearl of great price, and it's worth everything else that you have in exchange for it. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful, grateful for the value that you have revealed to us in Christ and the, the, the treasure that we have in the kingdom of heaven and everything that awaits us, Lord, and we look forward to that day. And yes, there's something about us that says, hey, I, you know what, I want to be done with sin, and I don't think that's a bad thing. But Lord, I, I pray that we would have an even greater desire to say, you know what, I want to be done with sin and in the presence of Christ. Lord, I want to experience that joy that is unfathomable at this point. And yet that we have and we know we have through our relationship with Christ. And we are so thankful for that, Lord. May we cherish it and prize it and value it even more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.